It was one of those snow days in Connecticut. The skies poured out so much snow overnight that the next morning, nobody went to school. Nobody got out of their homes. Nobody got on the train and went to the city. It was a total whiteout snow day. It was a few years ago, and our children were about four years old and six years old, Riley and Eva. I remember the day really well. They were antsy inside the house, so I did what probably a lot of parents did that day. I took them out into the snow to play. And after some time, after our fingers and toes were cold, I said, hey kids, let's go on in for some hot chocolate. So we went inside and removed our snow gear. And I remember really vividly Riley and Eva sitting at the dining room table, eagerly awaiting their hot chocolate mugs. I was in the kitchen heating up the hot chocolate, and right as I had done that, I decided to just put on that extra special blessing. I reached into the bag of those tiny marshmallows. I grabbed a handful, and I plopped it into Riley's mug. I grabbed another handful, and I plopped it into Eva's mug. And I went into the dining room, and I set those hot chocolates before them. And I walked back into the kitchen, and I thought to myself, Man, these kids have it good. I actually then thought, life doesn't get much better than this. Literally, right when I was thinking that, this earth-shaking scream came from the dining room. I thought maybe Eva had burned herself. I ran into the dining room and I looked at my daughter's face and there was this look of sheer terror upon it. And she exclaimed, he got 11 marshmallows. And I only got eight. (laughs) Compare and despair. You know, it's easy to laugh at my daughter, but the reality is children often just simply display what adults have learned to conceal. Why does my neighbor have more than I do? Compare and despair. We can even say that comparison is the enemy of contentment. Here's a person who has everything that she needs and more. She's have, she has a warm home, a loving family, a day off, marshmallows, chocolate in liquid form. <laughs> Do you know how many people living in poverty on planet earth will never taste hot chocolate? And in that moment, she didn't sit there and say, Lord, thank you for all these blessings poured upon my life. No, she sat in the lap of luxury and she thought an injustice was being done to her. Can anyone relate? There's a man in the Bible named Asaph who found himself in a similar place, the compare and despair trap. And he wrote a prayer about it, not only recognizing and being honest with how he was feeling, but also offering the best solution to the comparison trap. Asaph was a worship leader for David and then later Solomon. He worked in the temple. He knew his scriptures, yet he found himself comparing and despairing, and then he offers us in this beautiful prayer the solution. He gives us three different views in this psalm, and we're actually going to spend the whole month of November studying this one psalm. Oftentimes, Scripture, it's like a diamond, and you can hold it up to yourself and look at it and see a beautiful facet, a glimmer of light or color, but if you turn it in your hand, you'll see a new facet, a new glimmer, a new angle. We're going to do that with Psalm 73 this month. We're going to turn this psalm three times. We're going to look at it every Sunday this month with the exception of Pivot Sunday. 
And we'll see that Asaph, in his prayer, changes his perspective on three things. He changes the way he views others, the way he views himself, and the way he views God. And it all happens for Asaph in the sanctuary. If you've closed your Bible, I invite you to open it up again. I want to navigate you to how this psalm works. Once you have your Bible open in front of you, I want you to look at verse 17. Psalm 73, verse 17. This, psalm, this verse is the hinge on which the entire psalm turns. You see, in verse 17, he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Everything that he says before verse 17 is his pre-sanctuary view of others, of himself, and of God. Everything he says after verse 17 is his post-sanctuary view of those same three things. It all changes in the sanctuary. It's kind of like taking your car to a car wash. Picture this now, in the middle of winter, your windshield is covered in that road salt that they put on our roads. And your windshield wiper fluid is broken. You can't see clearly. This is Asaph, pre-sanctuary. He has a warped perspective. He's looking at others, himself, and he's looking at God, but he can't see clearly. Like a driver with a caked windshield, he's a danger to himself and to others. Until he goes into the sanctuary, until he goes into the car wash for his soul. And he gets a new perspective. Now he's a safer driver spiritually. He's got a new perspective on others, himself, and God. Today, we're only going to look at one of those three perspectives. His new perspective on how he views others. We're going to deal with the other two in the coming weeks. But today, we're going to learn this new perspective that he got and we can get in the sanctuary of God as we view others. We begin with verses 1 through 3. This is the prologue of the psalm, and we see in these first few verses the reality that comparison, when we compare ourselves to others, well, it can actually cause us to slip away from God. Comparison can cause us to slip away from God. Let's read the first three verses. It says this, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. See, Asaph knows his Bible. He knows his theology. This begins with a theological declaration. God is good to those who are pure in heart. When he's thinking about this theology, he has a problem. He actually then tells us, it's a, more, it's a it's cautionary tale. He says, when I was thinking about how God is good to those who are pure in heart, I actually almost had a faith crisis. He says this in verse 2, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, Asaph almost has a faith crisis. He begins slipping away from God when he becomes envious of the arrogant when he sees the prosperity of the wicked. Now, this is some interesting psychology going on here. Because he has two conflicting emotions. He's calling them wicked, and in some sense, we're going to see in a moment, he's despising them. But also, interestingly, look at that in verse 3. He's envious of them. It's like he's saying, I hate those wicked people, and I kind of want to be them. This is some deep psychology that's causing Asaph to 
possibly stumble, to lose his faith, to slip away from God. You see, Asaph being a worship leader in the temple, he would have known his Bible. He would have known his theology. He would have known the law of God. And he would have known what it says in Deuteronomy, that those who obey God's law receive God's blessings. And those who disobey God's law receive curse, blessings and curse. Obedience, righteousness leads to blessing. Disobedience, unrighteousness leads to curse. Yet when Asaph looked around in his life, he saw something conflicting with that. Because he saw people who were unrighteous, who were not obeying God's law, yet they seemed to be receiving material blessing. So he's confused. And so for the rest of the, this first portion of the psalm, Asaph simply presents to God the evidence He's bringing into the courtroom of God saying, look, God, look at these wicked people. Why are you allowing them to prosper? You see, it's a deeper question simply than, why does my neighbor have more marshmallows than me? He's actually saying to God, why do you allow the wicked to prosper? Why do you allow the wicked to prosper? I think Asaph's prayer could be really relevant for us. So often we pastors get prayer requests from you all. We love doing that. And sometimes the prayer request is, I'm being considered for a promotion. Will you pray that I get the promotion? And oftentimes when we follow up and we say, hey, how did it go? Did you get the promotion? You know, sometimes when people don't get the promotion, they have a really mature, positive perspective on it. But other times people will say, no, I didn't get the promotion. You want to know who did? And then this Awful things are coming out of their mouth. The one who played the political game better than me. You see, it's the same question that Asaph was asking. Why, oh God, would you allow someone less righteous than me to prosper even while I suffer? Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, shouldn't we have some kind of judgment when we look at the evils in the world? Shouldn't we see that if there's wicked people, we should be able to bring that before God? Yes, but... As we're going to see as we look at the rest of these verses, Asaph is actually sitting in the throne of judgment. He's actually sitting where God should sit. And he's actually throwing this against God, saying, God, why aren't you doing your job? And Asaph kind of is suggesting that he should do it the way Asaph believes he should be doing it. And that, as we'll see, gets pretty exhausting. Let's look at the next few verses. They're kind of hard to read, but basically what they are is Asaph displaying before God a parade of evidence. He brings out a parade of all the wicked people and their characteristics, and he brings them before God for God to consider. Let's start with verse 4 and look at this parade of horrible, wicked people that Asaph brings out. Verse 4 says this, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I should probably explain that. In our modern culture, we often value or prize thinness and fitness. But in the ancient world, almost everybody was thin and fit because they had to scramble. They had to work hard for their meals every day. They were eating food from the earth. They didn't have all the fattening foods that we have. So almost everybody was thin, except for the rich. You see, because rich people had servants to scramble for their food for them. They brought them all the food and drink they would ever want. So if you lived in the ancient world and you started getting fat, well, that was a status symbol. You would want the whole community to see how fat you were because it would show how wealthy you are. I said this in the first service and Pastor Chuck got really excited. He said, amen. It's the first time I've heard him say amen <laughs> in one of my sermons. 
He said, bless the Lord. He said, bless the Lord. I'm filtering so many jokes right now. So Asaph is displaying before God that these wicked people have fat and sleek bodies. He continues in verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. You know, sometimes when I have destructive or negative characteristics or behaviors in my life, I try to hide them. I try to conceal them. But there are some people, and I think we're seeing this a lot in our culture right now, they're putting their negative characteristics on full display, like you'd wear a necklace. You see, that's what Asaph is showing God here. Pride is their necklace. They're prideful people, and they walk around boasting about that. Violence covers them as a garment. Do you see this, God? Why are you allowing them to prosper? They're wearing their negative characteristics like jewelry for the whole world to see. He continues his complaint in verse 7. He says, Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Probably a better translation for that would be their faces swell out through fatness. He's again referencing the fact that they're gaining weight. And he says their hearts overflow with follies. This is most likely a reference to drunkenness. He's reminding God that they're in their laziness. They can eat and drink whatever they want. Their faces are swelling out. Their hearts overflow with drunkenness. He continues in verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Can you picture these people that Asaph is describing? These are people who throw their weight around. These, these are people who walk into the boardroom and if they want your opinion, they'll give it to you. Their tongue struts through the earth. I'm beginning to picture the people that Asaph is bringing before God. He's actually feeling, it, it, it seems obvious to me that he's hating them. Their tongue struts through the earth. Look at the power they have over me, oh God. Look at the power they have over our whole society. He continues in verses 10 and 11. I'm going to deal with verses 10 and 11 much more in a couple of weeks, but it's worth reading them right now. I'm not going to comment on them, and we're going to go to verse 12. Verses 10, he continues. He says, Therefore God's people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Behold, look, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Asaph's been looking at his Facebook feed, and he's been seeing his friends and his acquaintances who always seem to be on vacation. <laughs> look, there they are in the Caribbean. They were in Aspen two weeks ago. Now, look, they're in the Mediterranean. Do these people ever work? Always at ease, they increase in riches. It's easy to get cynical. It's easy to get critical when we see people prosper. About six years ago, when Nancy and I first moved here to Greenwich, a number of you were gracious and hospitable to give us tours of Greenwich. 
One person reached out to me. He didn't belong to this church, and he still doesn't belong to this church, but he knew that I was moving to town, and he offered to give me a tour of Greenwich, so I took him up on it. He picked me up in the morning, and he drove me around, and for three and a half hours, he gave me his perspective on Greenwich. I remember it really well. He took me to a residential neighborhood where he showed me a really nice house, and he said, you see these people? They inherited all their money. They haven't worked a day in their life. And he drove on. He took me in front of a business, and he said, I know the owner of this business. He's a crook. We kept driving. I remember we came up to a stoplight, and there were some workers doing some construction on the road, and he said, look at these people. Six men leaning on their shovels and only two working. The unions are corrupt. We kept driving. We went all the way out to Todd's Point. It was so beautiful out there. There was nothing for him to complain about that he could see. So he began listing for me all the problems with all the churches in town and how each one was just a terrible place to worship. Finally, after three and a half long hours, he deposited me on my driveway. I was so car sick and I was so exhausted. Judging people is exhausting isn't it? It's actually exactly where Asaph finds himself in verse 16. He spent all this time bringing out this parade of horribles before God. He's feeling conflicted. He's, he's hating them, but he also wants to be them. He's envious of the arrogant. And look in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's worn out. It's hard being God judging people. So he deposits himself in the only place he knows to go. Verse 17, until, until, thank God for this word until in this prayer, until I went into the sanctuary of God. God, I need a new perspective. I'm wearing myself out, driving around town, judging these people. I can't see clearly. My windshield is caked with road salt. I'm a danger to myself and to others. Please bring me into the car wash for my soul. Bring me into the sanctuary. We're going to talk about this a lot next Sunday, so stay tuned for some of this. But what did Asaph experience in the sanctuary that changed him, that cleansed him, that made him see more clearly? Well, one thing he would have seen is an altar, for atonement, he would have seen a lamb being sacrificed for his sins, not just the sins of others, his own sins. That would have been reminder number one. And as he walked into the sanctuary, he would have been drawn closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, being reminded simply that there is a God. There is a God. And Asaph's not him. You and I are not God. We get reminded of that simply by walking into the sanctuary. We need atonement. We need forgiveness for our sins. And there is a God who will deal with the problems of the world. Asaph gets a whole new perspective. I want us to look now. In verses 18 through 20, Asaph looks back at the very same people he was judging. He looks back at them and he's got a new perspective on them. And his feelings toward them go from anger to sadness for them. And recognizing that God will deal with them. Let's look in verse 18 about what it says. Truly you. Truly you. I want to stop right there and point that out. Do you see what's happened in this prayer? Pre-sanctuary, Asaph is saying them, them, they. Look at them. Ugh. Now he's in the sanctuary and he's looking right at God, see? 
His prayer has changed in his truth speaking now. He's seeking truth from God, truly you. Now he sees these other people with a reference point of their being a God. Truly you set them in slippery places, he says. Verse 18, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Do you know anybody who seems so boastful, so powerful, so arrogant, but they're deeply insecure inside. They're destroyed utterly in a moment. This is now how Asaph views these people. Oh, their feet are on slippery places. Compare that language with their tongue struts through the earth. Now I see them more clearly. Whereas they had so much power over me, they have no power over me anymore. They're, in light of who God is, look at them again. And then in verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now, what does that phrase mean? It's kind of hard to think about God despising somebody. Think of it this way. He realizes, Asaph does in the sanctuary, that there is a God sitting upon the throne of the whole universe, and God is so powerful and so sovereign that anything that intimidated me before is now put in perspective, is put in context of the power of God. And he says, in your timing, God, when you rouse yourself, when you turn your gaze upon them, they'll be like a phantom to you, like nothing, like a mist, like a dream. Just, whew. they seem so powerful to me before, strutting through the earth. But God, you'll deal with them. It'll be a, as hard for you to deal with them as it is for anyone to deal with a phantom. What's a phantom? It's nothing. You see, Asaph's perspective on these very same people has changed dramatically. He was so angry about them before. Now I think he's actually feeling a bit of compassion for them. Their feet are on slippery places. God will deal with them. It's not my job to do that. I've been preaching enough years to start anticipating the follow-up questions that come after a sermon. So I'm just going to head one off right now. I know exactly what somebody's going to want to come in and ask me about. This is exactly what they're going to say. They're going to say, so what did you do about the marshmallows? <laughs> yeah. It's always the practical questions people have. Well, I can tell you that it wasn't my best moment as a dad when Eva screamed about Riley having 11 marshmallows and her only having eight. What I wanted to do briefly in the moment was say, oh, yeah, you want to know what's, what's unfair? And I wanted to take her hot chocolate and dump it down the drain <laughs> and say, be thankful for what you have. I didn't do that. I actually did something, I think, even worse. I just I made the screaming stop, okay? I made the screaming stop. I grabbed three marshmallows, plopped them into her mug, and said, good, now you're good, right? You both have 11, even Stephen. I'll tell you why I think that's worse. Because it didn't actually solve the deeper problem. The heart problem. You see, this psalm could have unfolded in the same way. Asaph could have said, God, look at the wicked people prospering. Can you give me a little more so I have as much as them? Then we'll be even Stephen. And God could have said he could have plopped a few more blessings into Asaph's life. But would that have solved the deeper heart issue that's going on for Asaph? Would that have solved the question, why do you allow the wicked to prosper? No. There's a deeper thing going on here that Asaph gets resolved in the sanctuary. He has some profound statements that we're going to look at more in the coming weeks, but I'll just read them right now. Asaph realizes 
that he's been chasing after the blessings of others, but he's missed his true treasure in heaven. Verse 25, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And this next line is amazing. There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. You see, Asaph was so focused on the material blessings of the wicked. He was envious of them. He wanted them. He saw stuff that they had that he thought he should have. They had more marshmallows than him. Now he looks back at the whole world and he says, there's nothing on earth I desire more than you. You are my true treasure. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have everything I need if I have you, O God. You see, Asaph learns that in the sanctuary. He forgot. He has everything he needs, both now and into eternity, even if he dies with nothing. He dies a rich man because he has his truest treasure in heaven. And he concludes the psalm with the last two verses, reminding himself that God is God and he has what he needs. Asaph has what he needs. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. God, I trust you will deal with the wicked. It's not my job to do that. It's yours. As for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all of your works. You see what he was saying pre-sanctuary? He was just complaining. And now he has a new story to tell. I want to tell everybody about God's works and how good God is. So Asaph gets a new perspective in the sanctuary. We get a new perspective in the sanctuary of how we view other people. Next week, I'm tempted to just conclude the sermon by saying, you know, today we dealt with how we view others. We're going to deal with you next week (laughs) because we're going to see how Asaph and we can get a new perspective, not just on how we view others, but how we view ourselves. So stay tuned and come back next week for that message. Amen.